Welcome to this episode of 1202 The Human Factors Podcast. This week, we can look at the human factors in the rail industry, and, and this time, we're going to cross the water to Ireland. But before we get into the main episode, just a quick reminder that if you want to hear chat and discussion on human factors news, people's questions from the internet on a weekly basis, then do check out our sister podcast, Human Factors Cast, which can be found on your favorite podcast directory or YouTube, Twitch, and now even TikTok. Nick Rome and myself record the podcast live every Thursday evening in, in GMT time from 10 p.m. until midnight. If you've not seen it before, the podcast is only an hour long, but the live element also has a pre and a post show part to it where we're a bit more relaxed and, and we're putting the show together. You get to see a bit of behind the scenes. And if you comment on the social feeds while we're doing that, such as LinkedIn or Facebook, then we like to respond to the comments and, and engage. I also rebroadcast them through the, through the channel for 1202. So do feel free to drop in and comment. That is That happens every week and or most weeks anyway, and, and is always live. So you also get to see when things go wrong, which is highly amusing. Less so for me, more so for you. Anyway, on to today's episode. I mentioned on the interview with David Golightly that Nora Balfe, who joined us on the episode on the run-up to EHF 2022, has agreed to come back on. And she clearly um, did, didn't get enough of it first time. And I'm delighted to say that she's here with us today. So welcome, Nora, and thank you for joining us. Thank you, Barry. Um on that last episode, as, as I said, we largely focused on the work you were doing with conference. So, so this time I really want to get to know more about you, your background and, and your work in the rail industry. But before we get into that, this was the first EHF conference that you were co-chair of in, in, on the programme committee. Did it all go off in the way that you wanted to? Yeah, I think it did, actually. Yeah, the um, the, the big worry the big stress is whether we've got the keynotes right and um got lots of positive feedback on the keynotes so um that was a big plus and yeah and getting back together live for the conference and seeing everyone it was uh, restorative almost <laughs> if it's not too strong a word no i i think that's that's absolutely spot on i mean from my own perspective um i thoroughly loved it and it was so getting that blend right of the online and the live and being able to just see people and you know, I guess more importantly, have a glass of wine and and a catch up with people in 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 the um, in the interims were was absolutely fantastic. So uh, absolutely brilliant and well done to you and everyone else. Thanks. But let's get let's talk about you for a bit because we talk about other things quite a lot. So let's make all about you. Um, just so people get an idea of um kind of what it is you do now and and what you do on a day to day basis. What is your current role and and what do you do? So my current role is a uh, human factor specialist at Irish Rail. Um, uh, until recently, I was the human factor specialist at Irish Rail. So we've started growing the team, but um, my my job has been to really build human factors expertise and capability in, in the company and embed it. Um, so my day-to-day -day work is, is varied, as you might imagine. It kind of ranges from uh, interviewing drivers after incidents through to um, writing human factors integration plans or reviewing them from suppliers and working on safety culture. So, yeah, all the human factors. <laughs> all of the things. Yeah. Um, I've noticed yeah, it's a fairly good point, that, isn't it, that, you're, um, that you guys are, are actively recruiting. Um, we are, yes. So anybody who is out there who is looking to go and, and get involved, then they're easy to find um, 
um, adverts. And if I get my admin together, I will put one in the link in the description to this podcast as well. That'd be fabulous. Um, it's a great role. Lots of great projects in Irish Rail to, to work on and get stuck into. Got to be honest, I was tempted. Um, <laughs> but There's the... still time. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know whether I wish myself upon anyone. Um, so obviously what you're doing now, I mean, the um, human factors representative in um, in Irish Rail and growing your team and, and all that sort of stuff. How did you get started? What was the, when did you first find out like that the, this thing called human factors existed and that you wanted a piece of it? Uh, yeah, that's going back a while now. Um, so uh, yeah, more than, more than 20 years ago when I was doing my undergraduate um, project final year project, uh, I was studying aeronautical engineering and the, the project topic that I was given was um, aviation accidents and what engineers can learn from them. So obviously once started researching aviation accidents, the, the whole human factors elements started to come through and I was hooked. Um, so all, all my case studies that I picked apart from one were <laughs> about human factors. Um, so yeah, that that's how I got to wind of the discipline, I guess. And then I took myself off to Cranfield to do the master's there. Um, I think it was only the second year that it had run in Cranfield when I did it. Um, yeah, that's how I got started. So from being that um, young, keen and eager, um, you know, shiny, shiny new person, what, what, how did you get to where you are now? So what, what's been that career path for you? Um, convoluted and complicated settle in Barry yeah no I've, I've I've jumped back and forth between academia and industry and um between different sectors so mostly rail um but obviously I started out in aviation with my my undergraduate and the Cranfield course is very geared towards aviation um but then I was offered a, a PhD scholarship by Network Rail and famously said at the interview that I would go back to aviation afterwards, but uh, <laughs> and I did briefly, but then I came back to rail. Um, so yeah, I worked in air traffic control. Um, I've done a, a postdoc, um, working mostly in the process industries in, in Trinity College in Dublin. Um, I worked for for TRL for a little while as a researcher there, and um, took a brief foray into uh, regulation at the railway regulator in Ireland before I, I moved to Irish Rail. So moved around a little bit. Oh, that's cool. But that must have given you, or did, did you find benefit from being able to go from, I guess, firstly, the different disciplines, um, but also then how going in between industry and academia, um, almost like back and forth. Do you find that that really contributed to how you've been able to perform? Yeah, absolutely. I, I wouldn't have done it differently in hindsight. I've I've learned something in every job I've done and the different perspectives and the human factors problems and, and approaches are often quite similar, but the, the the way the industries work and the governance they have around projects and, and things like that can be very different. And um, all those different perspectives have been really useful. I've heard that even some in industries even have governance, which is... <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. So what we'll do now is we'll just take a really quick break and then I want to find out a bit more um, in detail because the rail sector is something that I'm very new to. I've spent most of my time in, in defence and, and, and aerospace, so I, I want to learn more. So we'll be back right after this. 
You are listening to 1202, the Human Factors Podcast. We wanted to take the opportunity to say thank you for your support. You can help further by rating us through your podcast provider, sharing us through social media, and telling your friends and colleagues. Let's work together in raising awareness of the value in putting users at the center of what we do. And welcome back. In this episode, we talked to Nora Balf about her work in the rail sector. So, Nora, really at, at that high level, how does Human Factors, um, sounds like almost a dumb question really, but how does Human Factors get involved in rail? Well, what's the, what's the scope? <laughs> yeah, it's the same as any other industry. There's a lot of different ways. Um, we have a, a kind of strategy in Irish Rail of where Human Factors fits in. So, um and it kind of goes from reactive to to assisting with investigations and assisting the whole investigation process um, through to, to much more strategic writing standards and guidance on different elements of human factors and um, the whole area of developing safety culture. Um, but 80% of my work is probably around human factors integration, human factors assurance on projects and looking at the um the the capital investment projects that we have coming through and embedding human factors principles and activities in those to to try and make sure that we get a really good product for end users in the end is there a difference between the way that i guess hf and i guess h5 is done within irish rail as opposed to um other rail in i guess national bodies and, and that type of thing or is it is it fairly standard across the board um i i, I think there's probably a, a different flavor in every organization. Um, I've kind of um, borrowed and stolen from all the different organizations and sectors I've worked in and putting together our uh, our process. Um, and, and again, going back to the governance point, I think different industries and, and organizations have their own governance processes and you need to, to hang off that to, to have a human factors process that works. Um, so I think it does vary a bit, but probably at, at a principal level, they're all very similar. I guess that helps because, like you say, if you're the um, prime and the lead for for Irish Rail, then you where do you lean on to get? Um, I guess that whole um, how do, where do you bounce ideas off and that type of thing? Because I found when I've been quite, you know, if go, I go into either an organization or something as a lone contractor, you're sitting there going, I'm all on my own. I've got nobody to, you know, and people expect you to be the person who knows everything. Um, and I definitely don't know everything. And I like to bounce ideas off. And that, how, how does that work on, on your level? How do you, have you found you deal yeah, with Yeah, I get referred to as the human factors expert in, in Irish Rail and <laughs> I don't accept the title. <laughs> it's, too, it's too scary to be an expert. Um, yeah, I, I I totally agree. It is it is almost lonely sometimes to be the only human factors person in an organisation. But um, so one one of the elements of our strategy actually is to have it, I have various lab, labels for it: uh, networking or knowledge development or uh, I can't remember the other <laughs> synonym I have that it's moved as the strategy is developed. But it's basically looking outward. So um, I'm a member of a, there's a couple, there's quite an active actually European rail human factors community um, that's growing and building. So between the the regulator era, the European Union Agencies for Rail and the uh, UIC, the International Union of Railways, um, they both have uh, human factors networks 
um, that I participate in. So there's a, kind of a formal structure there and then also talking to, to some of the other members in that more informally and to bounce ideas off them or see what they're doing in their companies or uh, what direction they're going, what's worked, what hasn't. Um, so that's one element. And then within Irish Rail, there are people who've, before I joined, Human Factors wasn't a, a new idea to them. So there are, there are people who have um, maybe not specialist knowledge, deep knowledge, but certainly a, a good understanding, a good awareness. So there, there's people there as well, and they can help with um, the culture of the organization, what will work internally, what's been tried before, um, what direction to go with. So I kind of have people that I've I've built up and um, can <laughs> bounce ideas off when I think I might be onto something mad. <laughs> <laughs> need to, to sense check it. <laughs> That's always the best time though, isn't it? You think, I, I've got a slightly crazy idea, but I, I just need to, <laughs> yes. <laughs> you talked about... Um doing a lot of work around HFI and in integrating human practice into new projects. What sort of, I guess, what sort of projects are you talking about and how do you ensure that you've got a human, because it's always the big challenge, isn't it, is if you get human factors in, installed into a project early doors, then that's where you get the best value. You Doing it later on is always so, oh, if only you'd done this. So how do you make sure that HF is, is integrated and what do you do around it? Um, yeah, so for a start, very lucky that the um, European Railways Agency has written regulations that says we have to do human factors as part of change management. And so um, in our safety management system, um, we have to have something around human factors. Um, so that that's kind of given a, a hook to say, well, you know, I think it's a great idea anyway, but <laughs> we also have to do it. Um, uh, so that that's that's really the the push. Um, so uh, we have a safety management standard around change management, um, and the the human factors integration is embedded into that. So when a project is proposing a change, um, they have to assess the human factors impact, um, and uh, then that goes through me. And we, if it's rated as um, medium or high, they've got to put a, together a plan um, to deliver the, the human factors integration, which, which I've started to call human factors assurance only because at kind of a European level, the term human factors integration gets referred to as the whole integration of human factors into rail operations. And right. um, so just to, to distinguish it, I've, I've called that process human factors assurance. Um, so yeah, it's it's um, embedded in the safety management system, which means it it's um, uh, a, a need to have rather than a nice to have, um, which is uh, in a strong position. Oh, that's that, yeah. I mean, that's that means it, it's like nicely embedded into the culture and everything. So therefore, um, you're almost knocking um, at an open door. Well, I'm, um, hopefully, even though I, I bet there's still some people who grudgingly do it um <laughs> yeah absolutely but i i find that when you start with a project they're like oh what is this i don't even know why you're here and then you you start to put together some of the plans and they're like oh okay we have to do this and then they start to come up with their issues and the problems that they're getting stuck on and they don't have anybody else to solve them so they're, sometimes they're actually oh they're, oh this is what you can help me with oh great <laughs> that's brilliant thank you you take this really difficult problem that i didn't know how to do anything about and you solve it <laughs> yeah 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 but uh, no but again but at least you're getting that sort of reaction i mean that's that's really positive there is obviously other industries and stuff where people are just against it full stop and they'll yeah. do everything again so that's really reassuring um I've heard a term, and apparently it's a big deal, um, SPADS. Uh, <laughs> yeah. 
what are they and, and, and why are they important? Yeah, the railway has a, a real hang up about SPADs. Uh, it stands for Signal Passed at Danger, so SPAD. Um, and it, it's a, the closest analogy that most people would be familiar with is passing a, a red traffic light. Okay, right. So it, it's it's a train going through a red light. So it was supposed to stop at the red light, but for whatever reason, it didn't. Um, it's a little bit different from road because typically in road driving, the driver can stop, well, almost always <laughs> can stop um, within the distance that they see the light go red or, or go amber first. So you can see the amber light and you'll be able to stop at the red light in time. Trains are much heavier much lower coefficient of friction between the wheel and the rail. So if you were to do that with, with a train and the driver had to stop within the distance, they could see the, the signal, the, the traffic signal, the train usually wouldn't be able to stop or very often wouldn't be able to stop. So the way the railway works is that the previous signal is yellow. And right. that tells the driver, okay, the next one is going to be red. So you must be prepared to stop at that next signal which then puts a whole memory issue on it. And there might be a station stop between seeing that yellow signal and the next red one. There might be um, other speed restrictions or other, other tasks the driver has to do. And it, it could be um, 30 seconds travel time. It could be five or 10 minutes travel time, depending on where it is. So there, there's a whole time period there where things can happen and the driver can forget that the last signal is yellow. So um, that that's, not the only reason that they don't stop at the red signals, but one of the probably the most common. So I would guess that's kind of le leads me into almost realizing that um, I guess in this in today's world of automation and and all that sort of stuff, we kind of assume that all there's so much um, electric, um, I guess, digital readouts and everything in, in cabs because they're everywhere else. They're in aviation, they're in that sort of stuff. But by the sounds of it, we still rely very heavily on um, train drivers, I'm going to call them pilots then, um, train drivers having, you know, being aware of their um, situation and having real direct control over what the train is doing. Is there, is, is, is there, development of future technologies to help you know assist the drivers in this in this sort of work or is are we still decades away from it no absolutely i mean there's systems in place so in in ireland we have um two systems already in place and have been since i think the 1980s um which uh one of them just repeats the signal in the cab so there's kind of a reminder there for them um and they have to acknowledge it when it downgrades so and it changes to a more respect restrictive signal aspect um and there's uh, another one atp which will supervise the train um and and will uh, apply the brakes when it's coming up to the red signal if the driver doesn't but um the, the railway is very old. <laughs> I don't know if you know that. It's been, <laughs> been around for a while. <laughs> and so when you, when you try to design those kind of automated systems to overlay on a, on a, a system that was designed by the Victorians, mm. the, it works in, in most cases, but there's always the, the fringe cases where it, it doesn't. So there's, there's now a, a new system as well that's much better or a much higher level of, of safety protection, uh, the European Train Control System, ETCS, which is one of the big projects that we have in Irish Rail at the moment to, to implement this. Um, and in theory, it's very simple. You, you put some um, 
digital devices on the tracks that will communicate to the train what the signal ahead is and it will apply the brakes if it's red and the driver hasn't done it and it will display in cab what speed they should be going in order to stop at the, the next signal. So those technologies absolutely exist, but they, they generate so many human factors problems as well, because then you have, okay, well, what if the signal's not working? Or if you're in a location where it's a little bit difficult to put the the uh, technology in the right location, or you need to, to operate in a different way. So generates all these other fascinating problems for us to work on. Well, I guess you'd be bored otherwise. Um, <laughs> I guess, I mean, that is a really significant point. You're effectively re constantly retrofitting. Um, mm. Even if you put new rolling stock on, you're still on um, and antiquated, literally, um, rails and, and basically, the, the, I guess, network infrastructure would be, that, be the right term. Um, infrastructure, yep. Yeah, so that's, uh, check me, I'm learning things. Um, you know, it's, and that... At what point do you um, turn around and say, well, actually, some of this just can't be done because of um, the infrastructure? And therefore, you know, is there a golden point where certain things have to you know, wholesale upgrades and things like that? Or is it just constant? That's just too expensive. And therefore, you keep on doing what you're doing. Yeah, there, there's a, all those scenarios are, are at play. So there, there's business cases written. So if you have a, your, your busy lines around big cities, those will be modern infrastructure with color light signals and um, and modern interlockings. So um, the, the whole system behind it will be very modern and you can do a lot of things with those. Um, but on kind of rural lines or lines with, that don't have a lot of traffic, there's not a big business case to invest in those. So sometimes they're they're still um, uh, mechanically operated. So they, they are literally the, the system the Victorians invented with um, the signals are, are semaphore signals. They, they go up and down. They're, they're not color light. And they're, they're attached to a lever in a signal cabin that somebody pulls to, to, to um, put it on and off. Um, and that <laughs> obviously retrofitting to that you get some funny <laughs> situations where you you're operating these levers but then uh, the other half of your control area might have migrated to a more modern so so we have people operating levers and sitting with their mouse <laughs> operating wow. via yeah so there's a whole mix of of technologies from from the last 150 years and they only get upgraded every 30 years or so that's probably the, the life expectancy of a modern signaling system so um, that that's kind of the window you have to to do yeah. something um, new. That's on the one hand, obviously, it sounds a bit crazy, but you're right from a human factors perspective. What an amazing opportunity to get involved in just such a range of different things on the set, almost on the same line. But like going, it's 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 almost like working in history all the way through. That, that, <laughs> yeah. that it must be so much fun. It it is. Yeah. No, I love rail. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. No, I, I I can I can see why the. I guess one of the the less fun bits um, or the more serious bits uh, to a certain extent is um, is that inve investigative part because you, you mentioned earlier you, you carry out investigations when things don't go the way they way they should. Um, how do you get involved in them? What's kind of your 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 role there? Um, so it's mostly the SPAD investigations um, that I get involved with uh, as kind of a, a default. Um, it's interesting, though, because a lot of our other incidents have kind of the same precursors, but the, the rail industry is not just Irish rail, but generally the rail industry is a little bit obsessed with the, the SPADs. So the, right. those tend to have a, a more focus on the investigation. Um, so my role has kind of become... Um, 
evolved to interview the the driver afterwards um almost a lot of the time the the immediate causes to do with the the driver and, and their actions um so um i do a joint interview with um our um chief traction executive which is a, a title that means nothing outside of irish rail i think um but he's responsible for the the competence management of all our train drivers so right. um I, I kind of take the the systems view. So what what might have been influencing the actions, and he's taking the the more driver development and training um, view. So what can all the other drivers in our um, network learn from this event? Um, and then uh, we do a in our trail. There's a, a review meeting within about a week of a spad where all the the players will get together, the managers, um, the the competence assessors and um, whoever else might have been involved or been a stakeholder in the event. Um, so I tend to go to those as well and, and kind of represent the, the human factors perspective, the influencing factors. So it's it's been a, um, a, a learning <laughs> journey for myself in terms of investigations, but also for the organization, because I think when I first started, they used to ask me along to say, well, what's wrong with this person? <laughs> <laughs> and, and then they'd be a bit mystified while I was saying, well, I think this signal might have a problem. <laughs> like, no, no, you're the human factors person. You focus on the, the human. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So um, it's been a, which is a good opportunity to kind of build awareness of what human factors is really about and to, to try and push the systems thinking and what are the influences on human performance. Um, so it's an ongoing journey. <laughs> well, uh, sounds very worthwhile though. So when you, when you've, conducted that or been part of that that investigation then how does that does that learning get back into the into the business into in, in into the organization to to improve or is it just i guess put in a box somewhere not as much as i'd like i, I mean in fairness though each investigation will come up with actions that are kind of taken during the course of the investigation so there there'll often be improvements made as a result um there's always briefing to to the drivers afterwards, but uh, sometimes that's a little bit too soon, and we don't know all the the kind of factors that might have been at play. Um, so there there is, um, and then there's of course the the report itself, which will have recommendations for anything that's kind of a bigger, longer term change. Um, so there is a lot of uh, learning and feeding back to the business, but I I personally would like to see much wider and kind of more um, less. 40, 50 page investigation reports and more one page summaries that more people in wider across the organization would read and, and learn from. So um, that's a, an area of improvement that we, we're kind of working on. We're, we're aware of it, but change take, it takes a while. <laughs> it doesn't everybody, do, it, it's that, I guess it's a common belief, isn't it? That if you don't have something thick and weighty that you can hold a door open with, then then it's not good value for money. Whereas you're right, sometimes brevity um allows you to throw messages out there um much wider there's very few people are going to sit down and read a, a 50 page report um especially frontline staff that they they have theoretically access to it but um i think if you want um wider learning and and to show staff that you are paying attention to to not just what they do but what influences what they do i think you need to be much more succinct in the communications and targeted Yes, I guess the because everyone has limited bandwidth for one, and frontline staff have got, I guess, the day job as well. Yeah. So yeah, you, you need to be able to pull that stuff in. 
I'm going to jump now into our final final couple of questions. Um, these questions that we ask everybody. Um, so um, just just to really get get a flavour for what, what sort of things you do for fun. Um, do you have a book or a paper, um, either academic or, or, in fact, even fiction? We've had some fictions on here as well. Um, books that you keep on going back to repeatedly, something that you just always pick up and you you use all the time. Uh, yeah, a few. <laughs> um, my go-to book, if I'm stuck and I'm like, what? I don't know what to do next or how to to address this, is um, evaluation of human work. Um, so John Wilson and Sarah Sharple's book. Uh, everything is in it. <laughs> you need a starting point for something. There's there's always yeah. there's always a starting point in there. Um, other books, if if somebody is kind of saying to me, I'm interested in human factors, but what's it about? I'd like to learn more. I always point them towards um, Don Norman's design of everyday things. I think that's kind of the perfect book to explain what we're about in a in a way that isn't about all the methods and the, the heavy theory, but just to get it across. Um, I mean, specifically for the rail industry, there's a, a series of conference books. There's a, a rail human con factors conference that RSSB run every few years. Um, and the more recent ones, the papers are available online. But the first ones, the, the papers are um, in a book, in three books. And um, those are, uh, <laughs> if I can't find it in evaluation of human work, I'll find it in there. <laughs> Um, and the other one is um, recently somebody recommended to me, I've been trying to do work on just culture, which um, is just very, very difficult topic. Um, uh, but uh, a book that I've been kind of recommending to to people in Irish Rail to read to get their head around it is Black, Black Box Thinking, um, which is uh, really good for like managers. It's written for that kind of audience. So yeah. it, it's um, it's been really helpful to get the ideas across to them and i guess on that on that just culture piece there's a by the time this goes out there'll be now, then three um, podcast episodes focused on just culture so if you wanted to throw them that way then i'm just saying just don't tell anybody else or they'll, they'll all want some <laughs> um thanks <laughs> if you could go back to you know young nora um what advice would there be any bit of advice that you give yourself give your younger self to knowing what you know now is there anything that you would uh encourage or discourage you know i was thinking about this and i was thinking i still need to take the advice that i would give my younger <laughs> self <laughs> haven't managed to learn it yet <laughs> i think i think i'd try to to um, say pick your battles um like uh, and um and and don't get emotionally invested and in, especially around the just culture topic <laughs> it's very hard but to, to um you can only do what you can do and um you've got to kind of set realistic targets I, I think that's sometimes quite hard for us in human factors because we have such a broad scope and we're we're so interested in the whole system and how it works but actually we can only change the bits that that are possible to change and um, mm. so i think um yeah, I think I would advise myself to to be aware that there there is a, a scope and um, to to be better at, at identifying and managing the scope that you're going to work within. Um, note all the other things, but don't try to to do everything at once. But that's difficult, though, isn't it's it? It's so difficult. Yeah, that's why I said I need to still need to take this advice. And that whole not getting emotionally invested in what you're doing is. Given what we do as well, I, uh, yeah, I'd, I'd love to be. I'd love to be able to sit back and say, no, no, that's fine. I'll let that go. Yeah, I've started recently uh, thinking: is this a hill I'm prepared to die on? And mm, sometimes yeah. it is. Sometimes I will 
like it draws a line in the sand but sometimes it's just no look I'll put together the evidence that I've got I'll present it and then it's up to the business to see if they want to um to take it or not yes no I'd I'd, I'd um I think I would like to give myself similar advice but I don't know whether I could take it yeah, I'm, I'm still working on that maybe we need a support group <laughs> <laughs> great idea no thank you ever so much for taking time out your uh your day um and coming back for for a second bite at the, at the interview piece it's really I mean clearly the stuff you get involved with we bet I feel we barely scratch the surface of what you get to on a day-to-day basis but thank you for giving us an overview and maybe we can um drag you back to at some point to talk about something um quite specific to to get into the nitty-gritty of but but for now thank you ever so much i really really appreciate it thank you really enjoyed it and thank you for listening and sharing in our experience so all i would push out to you that are listening to this is tell your friends and tell your colleagues and if you're especially feeling generous leave us a review or just get on the socials and and comment on what you've heard um do you agree with it do you disagree with it um because the more that you comment and, and engage with with the socials then that means other people see it and we can broaden the discussion so really strong, strongly encourage you to to engage with us and and tell us what you think but for now we shall see you on the next episode Thank you for listening to 1202, the Human the Factors, Factors Podcast. Podcast. Please do get in touch with your thoughts, questions, and comments. You can contact us on social media such as Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook at 1202 Podcast. See you next See time. You next- and remember, it's more than just common sense.